like you to uh, listen. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in according to their kinds. And God said that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and God said let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing which the water te- with which the water teems and that moves about it in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals each according to its kind and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. 
and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating all that he had done. We live as Christians with an inherent tension. On the one hand, we believe that God reveals himself through the scriptures and his revelation is true. But we also believe that God reveals himself through nature. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. For a, a Christian, the natural world and the Bible should not be at odds. Both reveal the truth. The problem is they don't always seem to fit together well. So sometimes we get Bible and science at odds with each other. And oftentimes it comes down to how we interpret the data. And to be quite honest, sometimes we have gotten it wrong on the science side and sometimes we have gotten it wrong on the scripture side. And the reality is, uh, in this tension, both sides to need to live with a bit of humility and open-mindedness. What is frustrating to me is this whole area, area of origins and evolution has become uh, divisive in our evangelical culture. The sides have become polarized. Um, it's almost as if it's part of the culture wars. You know, 50 or 60 years ago, you had a variety of opinions of how God created, whether the earth was young or new, and it was simply a matter of conversation. But now it has become to the point where people are making statements like this. If you believe in evolution, you cannot believe in the Bible, and if you believe in the Bible, you cannot believe in evolution. And I want to suggest that maybe that's a false dichotomy really think that you don't have to choose between being an anti-science religionist or an anti-religion scientist. So this morning I want to make a, a couple observations as we talk about this issue. Um, if you have questions as I go through, you can text them. They've put the number up on the board. Please do that. Um, but a couple things to keep in mind. Okay, first of all, this issue does not affect your salvation. <laughs> there will be people from every side of this issue in heaven. Billy Graham was pretty open to the notion that God worked through evolution. Didn't think Genesis was addressing the mechanics. C.S. Lewis didn't even think Adam and Eve were real people, just literary figures. My guess is when we get there, both will be there. Just a guess. As a Christian, you can believe in evolutionary creation, intelligent design, an old earth, a young earth, and still be in the camp. And quite honestly, there are really great, godly, intelligent, well-motivated people, well people on both sides, all sides of this issue. Okay? 
Second observation. None of those positions has to compromise the authority of Scripture. All sides often attack the other side saying, well, you're just not treating the Bible the way the Bible's supposed to be treated. You just don't. We just need to lay that aside and say, hey, you know, people on all sides of this issue are trying to handle the Scriptures well. That's what's motivating. They're not evil. Uh, um, People in all these camps hold the Bible as authoritative in their life. Third, Waterstone. Um, this, your position on this issue has nothing to do with your involvement in Waterstone. We, we kind of set as one of our founding principles this notion of agreeing to disagree. What we're saying is, uh, on our doctrinal statement, those are the things we agree to agree on. If it's not in our doctrinal statement, then we can disagree and have a good discussion. This is one of those issues that's not in our doctrinal statement. So let me be blunt. You don't have to agree with this, me this morning. That's okay. What binds us together is not our view of creation. What binds us together is Jesus. And I just have to be honest with you. For over 30 years, I have not preached on this issue. You know why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of you aren't going to like what I say, and I don't want to be divisive, all right? Four, it's, it's an important issue, because it does impact how we read the scriptures, and it does impact how we reach our world. It's important. So, I want you to note, I am not a scientist. Science is not my field. So, I am not taking a position on whether... It's a new earth or an old earth or whether it's intelligent design or evolutionary creation. Those are all scientific questions, important questions. Um, I'm not qualified to, to speak on those with authority. But I do want to weigh in on how we interpret the Bible. That, that is my training. That is my area of study. And there I do have a position. And you can agree or disagree. Um, but I'm going to present what I believe is the best interpretation of the scriptures because that's my job. So I believe that the key issue here is not so much one of science, but really one of hermeneutics. In other words, how we interpret the Bible. So I don't want to start there. What's the nature of Scripture and how do we interpret it? So let me give you some key assumptions this morning. And this is applicable to all kinds of Scriptures, not just Genesis. But it's important stuff. First of all, when you come to the Bible, you have to take it on its own terms. So in other words, we have to try to read it according to its intended purpose. Too often, we kind of bring our expectations without even recognizing that we're doing that to the Scriptures and thinking, well, God must have written it this way. Um, we have to let God set the stage. In other words, when Scripture wants to be taken literally, we have to take it literally. And when the text was not written in, to be taken literally, we need to take it in a non-literal way. We have to listen to the text and not impose our thinking and our agenda on it. We have to try to figure out what the text meant to the original audience. You see us do this all the time. When we got to the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. We took an approach that said, hey, this is symbolic stuff. This isn't literal. We have to take it as symbols, even though that's difficult and not something we're used to. When we get to the Gospels, that's not symbolic. That's historical eyewitness accounts, so we take it that way. 
Uh, Genesis could be a straightforward observational historical rendition of what happened detailing how God created. Or God could be communicating theological truth through literary and figurative language and structure. Both are options. I mean, it's up to God, not us, to say that's what he's doing. We just have to figure out what he is doing and accept it as such. Second, and I want to get philosophical here for a moment. I want you to stay with me while I do, okay? The Bible is representational. I want to show you a, a work of art. Anybody know French? What's it say? Yeah, this is not a pipe. This is a famous work of art. I hadn't seen it before, but I think it makes a point. You look at it and go, what do you mean? That is a pipe. And that's his point. It's not a pipe. What is that? It's a representation of a pipe. It's an interpretation of a pipe. Scripture, although we don't usually think of it this way, is representational. It's always an interpretation of the events that are being described. We sometimes have this notion that Scripture is a video camera. You know, it was there. And that's what we're getting. That's not what we're getting. Scripture is an interpretation of the events. The author chooses what to include and what to leave out and how to describe the events and the conversations. And he is always writing with intent that he wants us to learn. God did not dictate the words of Scripture. He used human beings and their personality and their intelligence and their perceptions under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to create scripture. And thus, it's, it's a representation of the reality, not the reality itself. It's always one step removed. I want you to wrestle with that. I know that's a little abstract. Third point. Genre, in other words, the kind of literature something is, is key to interpretation. And there are all kinds of uh, genres in the Bible. There's letters, there's history, there's poems, there's genealogies, there's proverbs, there's fictional stories, there's apocalyptic literature. Uh, understanding the genre is absolutely crucial to interpreting, interpreting, interpreting scripture correctly. Now, uh, we don't think much of genre because we automatically shift our understanding uh, according to the genre we're reading, it, because of the culture we're in, we just naturally adapt. So when you read a legal document, you read it differently than when you read a comic book. And you read poetry different than you read a novel. And you read both those different than a sports page, and you read those different than an email. And we don't even think about how we're reading, we just naturally do it. It's the same in scripture. Sometimes we just naturally gravitate to the right genre. If we go to Psalm 17, verse 8, it says, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. How many of you assume it's describing Big Bird? None of you. Why, why don't you assume that? Because you automatically adapted to the notion, oh, that's poetry, that's figurative language. You, you did that without thinking. Well, sometimes it's not so obvious. So when you get to Proverbs and it says, raise up a child in a way he should go and he will not depart from it, is that a promise? Is it true? No, that is not always true, right? All of us can testify my kids didn't exactly go, well, maybe, well, see, it, it, <laughs> 
Why do we let Scripture get away with that? Because we know it's a proverb, right? And proverbs are general truths, not promises. And if you read proverbs as promises, you're setting yourself up in a dangerous position. Third, God is free to use any genre he chooses. History, eyewitness, poetry, proverbs, fictionary stories. Oh, the Bible doesn't have fictionary stories. Yes, it does. Jesus told them all the time. We call them parables, right? Fables, symbolic literature. God carefully chooses the genre he wants, what he believes is most effective for his purpose. So we have to be very careful about the genre and read the text accordingly. If we don't read a text according to a genre, we will distort the interpretation. How many of you are familiar with the fable of the tortoise and the hare? Right? True or not true? Uh, uh, Trick question. True or not true? Not true? Are you sure? See, it's not true if you read it as history. Right? There wasn't a rabbit that talks and a tortoise that talks and there was no race. Right? But it, well, it's not history. If you, what is it? It's a fable. If you read it as a fable, is it true or not true? Oh, it's true. Who, who did you let set the table? See, if you come to it and you set the table and say, it's history, it's not true. You've misread the literature. If you say, oh, it's a fable, and it teaches this lesson about perseverance. Oh, yeah, that's true. Misinterpret the genre, you'll misinterpret the literature and draw conclusions that are not correct. Now, here's, here's the challenge. Ancient narratives do not typically announce their genre or pronounce their own historicity or literary nature. There's a few exceptions. Luke chapter one, Paul, uh, Paul, Luke tells us that he interviewed people and that these are eyewitness accounts. We know. But a lot of times the author doesn't give us clarity. He sometimes gives us clues, but that's the challenge. It's not always crystal clear. So some people say, well, we should follow this rule of thumb. You should take a passage literally unless it makes no sense to, do, to not do so. I want to suggest to you that's a false rule of thumb. It's imposing our expectations on the text because we're saying, well, of course, God wrote the way I would have written, which is historical. Well, maybe not. Why should, be that, that, why should that be our default position? Rather, I think the rule of thumb should be this, always strive to take the passage as the original author intended it to be taken by the original audience. That's harder, but it's safer, okay? So genre is key. Next key assumption, and you'll wrestle with this one, the Bible is not a science book. And what I'm suggesting by this is that when you come to Scripture, it describes things as they're seen in what we call phenomenological language. So you get to Psalm 19, verse 6. tells us that the sun rises on one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its 
warmth. Historical, not historical. True, not true. Uh, does the sun rise and set? What science tell you? No, the sun does not rise and set. The earth turns. But we talk about it, the sun rising and setting all the time. Why? Because we're using phenomenological language. Scientifically, it's inaccurate. But we want to impose our scientific understanding on an ancient text. And that's illegitimate. Through the entire Bible, there's not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel or his people a science beyond their own culture. It just doesn't operate that way. So the ancient Near East cultures viewed the cosmos as a three-tiered universe. I'm going to put this up. Uh, there was a canopy in the sky that held back the waters. Land was as a flat disk, either floating or held up by pillars. And there was water underneath. Those are reasonable conclusions based on human observation. Scientifically, they're inaccurate, but Scripture wasn't concerned about giving you an accurate scientific description. Evidently, God didn't think it was important to revise their thinking. You say, well, that's not how the Scriptures present the world. Yes, it is. You see it in Genesis. He creates a vault, a separation between the waters. Then he creates land, and it stands on pillars. And then that's exactly what he's describing. And that bothers us. That's not, that's not right. God shouldn't accommodate. He's lying to us. No, he's not. When your four-year-old comes up and asks you, where do babies come from? <laughs> do you draw, draw pictures? No, you, <laughs> you lie. <laughs> no, you don't. You accommodate to them because that, they're not asking you an anatomy question. They're asking you something different. God does the same thing. Can you imagine how could God in an ancient Near East culture that doesn't have the understanding that we do about astronomy or matter or physics describe the creation of the universe? It's like trying to tell somebody who doesn't know how to add how to do calculus. Well, God's not being, no, God is being honest. He's just accommodating. That's the nature of how God communicates. That's the nature of the, 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 the incarnation, isn't it? That God sets aside some of his qualities of deity and order that we can connect. By the way, you see this historically. This was the whole problem with the debate between the earth-centered and the sun-centered solar system, right? Uh, people interpreting the Bible that way didn't realize that the Bible wasn't trying to give you accurate scientific information, so they just assumed that's what the world is. It's, it's, this, it's flat. And science was saying, no, it's round. And, and, and finally, the science became overwhelming, and we had to go back and say, wait, we need to take a second look at Scripture and look at how God communicates with his people. So, next question then becomes this. How should we read Genesis 1 through 3? What kind of genre is it? Let me give you some observations about the text. Hopefully you heard some of this as I read it this morning. 
Number one, there's a lot of repeated elements. Uh, uh, and God said appears 10 times. Let there be appears 10 times. And it was so seven times. And God thought it was good seven times. And there was evening and there was morning six times. This is crafted repetition. It's not straightforward telling of historical events. It is not a video camera. The word good appears 15 times in the first three chapters of Genesis. Do a word study on it and you learn tremendously that the conflict and the rebellion of humans was that God was the one defining, defining good and not good and suddenly Eve wants to define good and not good. And that sets up the pattern for sin that we see played out through the rest of scripture. Very carefully crafted. Second, it's poetic language. I mean, if you just listen this morning, there's a lyrically rhythmic pattern of verse coupling that almost has the feel of liturgy or of a hymn or of a song. And when you look at the structure, we always want to impose that structure must be chronologically correct. But to be honest, in Genesis 1, uh, he, it's dischronological. In other words, chronology or how things happen event after event are irrelevant. The structure, rather, is this notion of God bringing order out of chaos. Uh, it begins by saying God created the heavens and earth and they were formless or useless and void, chaotic. And then the structure shows us how God brought order to the chaos. Day one, he creates an environment day and night. Day four, he fills that environment with lights that govern the day and night. Day two, he creates the seas and the sky. And day five, he creates creatures of the sea and birds of the sky. Day three, he creates dry land and vegetation. And day six, he creates animals and humans to fill that land. He's not trying to give us chronology. He's trying to show us how order came out of chaos. And then notice the depiction of God. How tall is God? Well, if you read Genesis 1, you, you, should, you would say, well, I don't know, but He's walking, and he's playing in the mud, and he's breathing, so he must have a height. No, God is spirit, but he's not described as spirit. He's described in metaphorical language. And even the names we read, especially in chapter 2, uh, about Adam and Eve. Adam literally means human, and Eve literally means life. And Eden, the Garden of Eden, the word for Eden is pleasure. And Adam's name is a play on red, which is the color of dirt that he was made out of. Then what's even more telling is you have two creation accounts. Chapter 1 is one account. Chapter 2, 5 through the end of chapter 2 is another account. The first account occurs in seven days. The second account occurs in one day. We hide that by our translation, but the New American Standard Bible gets it right. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. <laughs> Different chronology. The first account, vegetation comes before there was an atmosphere or rain or man to till the earth in Genesis 2. Man comes first and then vegetation. The author knows what he's doing. He's not trying to give us a chronology of how things came about. That's just not his intent. And there's all kinds of typically non-historical, non-literal elements. You get two strange trees, the tree of knowledge 
and the tree of life. And the tree of life reappears in Revelation 22. Uh, It's a standard ancient Near East icon for the divine gift of immortality. And we make this, this talking and crafty serpent, right? Which is, again, stock, ancient Near East figure. We get four rivers, right? But these rivers are interesting. Usually, rivers flow together to form one. These rivers start from one source and flow out to four, which never happens scientifically. Because that's not the point. He's trying to say all life comes from the garden. So if you take all that, then you have to ask this question. What kind of genre of literature is Genesis 1 through 3? Well, I would suggest that what it is is creation literature. It contains many of the, many of the literary techniques, symbolism, and figured elements that are similar to other creation literature of its day. Well, people couldn't figure this out for a while because archaeologically we didn't understand the languages and the writing of these ancient cultures. If we've understood them more, we see all these similarities and we begin to realize Genesis is written in this, this, this genre of creation literature that was common in that ancient Near East culture. So what the author is doing is he's writing to be understood by that culture in a way that they would understand and their world was perceived. He's not trying to be a 21st century mechanic. He's not trying to give us a 21st century mechanical scientific description of material origins. Rather, he says, well, that wouldn't be very effective for my purpose if I communicate in metaphors and poetic language and try to be understood in the way they understand and take on what they understand of the world. Then it becomes this powerful poetic literature. And what he's doing is he's interacting with the creations of the uh, stories of that day in their given categories, but he's giving an alternative worldview that is in opposition to the current culture in terms of the nature of God and creation, purpose of human beings, their value, and the basics of life. But he's using their, their, the genre of their literature to do that. So I'll tell you what he's teaching here in a moment, but let me draw some conclusions. What does this mean? Number one, it means that the text is not trying to give us a scientific or historical account of the material origins of, the, uh, of creation. He's just not trying to tell us whether it's a young earth or an old earth, or if God used an evolutionary process, that's not his point. The text is just not answering the question we want it to ask, but we have to let the text set the table. And the text often disappoints us because Hebrew literature is sparse. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. We want to know where Cain's wife came from. We want to know where all the people who inhabited the cities came from. And the scripture says, you don't need to know that. That's not what I'm, the point I'm making. It's not telling us how the universe came into being. Rather, the author is trying to construct a different theological worldview that explains the larger questions of life. Is there a God? Who are we? Why are we here? What went wrong? And he's using the literary forms of the day to do so. Great great quote from John Walton. Wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, if you want to read more on this. Um, He writes this, If Genesis 1 is not an account of material origins, 
then it offers no mechanism for material origins, and we may safely look to science to consider what it suggests for mechanisms. We may find the theories proposed by scientists to be convincing or not, but we cannot, on the basis of Genesis 1, object to any mechanism they offer. The theological key is that whatever science proposes, that is deemed substantial. Our response is fine. That helps me see the handiwork of God. It doesn't have to be a conflict between scripture and science. The Bible takes no position on the age of the earth. That is not the Genesis story. What then does Genesis teach about origins? Oh, amazing things. In stark contrast to the prevailing ancient Near East understanding of God and his world. First, it teaches that God is real, one, transcendent, omnipotent, and sovereign. In his world, they worship many gods, and this account says, nope, there's only one God. Their gods were woven into the fabric of creation. There was gods of the sun and moon. This account says, no, our God is transcendent, apart from creation. Their gods often came out of battle with other gods, but in the Genesis account, this God is omnipotent. He commands things into being with no struggle, and he's personal. Wow. Two, tells us that God created this world with a purpose, and it is good. In the ancient Near East cosmologies, the cosmos was not created separately, but came into existence with the gods. It's part of the divine fabric. Here, the cosmos is treated uh, uh, not as deity, but as a stage on which life is to live out and where life is called to flourish. Third, it teaches us that humans are the pinnacle of his creation and have a purpose, a value uh, based on his image. In other creation stories, humans were seen simply as slave labor to serve the gods and the kings. A cosmic afterthought. This is amazing. Here, they are called images or representatives and called to be co-regents with God, both male and female. You almost get this democratic notion because all of humankind, male and female, are given value and in that culture, the only people who had value were those who were royal. This was subversive stuff. Fourth, we learned that humans have rebelled, which explains the entrance into evil and the nature of the world we live in. And then the rest of Genesis continues to give us this theology of life about marriage, about sin, about death, about culture, about judgment, about hope and human diversity. It, it, it's laying the foundation theologically for the world we live in. So, let me draw a conclusion, make two comments, and we'll open it up for questions. You can text them. Number one, we get so wrapped up with the material origins questions of the universe, how did we get here, that the scriptures really aren't concerned with, that we miss the obvious and astounding implications that are so critical to our worldview. For this literature to come into its world and say, hey, there is one God, not many gods. He is personal. He created this place and is separate from it. And the world is good and has a purpose. And we are created in his image and everybody has value. That's dangerous religion. Don't miss that. That's what this text is teaching. Those things matter. Those are the things that unite us. Those are the things that change our lives. And second observation, we let this debate get in the way of reaching those who don't know Christ. 
I, I, we don't intend to. But in, in, in trying to come to this text and say, it's got to tell us how it was done. We, we sometimes are really off the mark and people in the world can't buy it. So this debate around creation and evolution becomes this huge obstacle to people coming to faith in Jesus. And folks, the issue is Jesus, not what the heck we believe about the age of the earth. So if you walk out of here with nothing else, I want you to get this. There, there are intelligent, hopefully well-motivated people who take Genesis in a different way so that it doesn't have to be, that's not why we're taking it that way, we're just trying to deal with the text, but it doesn't have to be an obstacle for faith. You can believe in evolution and be a scientist and that not be in conflict with the reality of Jesus Christ. And it's the reality of Jesus Christ that matters. So let's make this a really secondary or third tertiary issue. And let's tell people about the reality of the resurrection and who Jesus is, because that's what matters. Amen? Okay, questions? For every week that we've done these loaded questions um, for this entire series, we're taking the last few minutes at the end for you to text in questions and then get the chance to have some of those answered. So we've got Jesse Raymer with us. He's our small groups pastor and also runs our alpha class, which is a place to come and ask questions as well. So thank you both for being on the receiving side of these that I'm about to ask you. All right, first question. Were Adam and Eve real? <laughs> and here, I'll give you the rest. Was the fall historical? And if so, what are the implications of that? You can So I agree with Nick that we need to be reading Genesis, especially 1 to 11, but uh, also 1 to 3, especially in light of what was the original author intending the original audience to understand. Um, and I believe that this is, this is creational literature. Um, and so I think it, it's, it's hard to tease out from Genesis itself if Adam and Eve were real. I do believe that Adam and Eve were real people. Um, and I think I believe that through Romans chapter 5. Um, in Romans 5, Paul talks about Adam um, and that all of humanity is in Adam. Uh, who sinned. Um, and so we're all under the condemnation of God for the sin in Adam um, and that we have that sin nature, but that we who believe in Jesus, we are in, in Jesus. Um, and that the historical act of Jesus, I believe, needs a historical act of rebellion from Adam himself. And so that's, that's more where I get that Adam and Eve were real people than, than Genesis 1 to 3 itself. I think a couple of things. Just because the literature in Genesis 1 is creational doesn't mean that there's not historical events behind that. So I think you can argue that there, I believe that there was an actual Adam and an actual Eve. You get to a separate question, are they the sole couple that genetically produce all of us? And genetic science would say, no, we probably came from a group. And I think that fits with scripture as well, that 
Adam and Eve are the representative heads, maybe of a community, and God infused them and then the rest of the community with the image of God. And when Adam fell, the whole community fell. And by the way, that's a a proposition that was put out by Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis in 1967 before the genetic research. So we're not just accommodating to science. But but I think those are historical because of what we read in Romans 5 and, and Acts chapter 17. All right, next one. Was the garden perfect, and was there death before the fall? (laughs) So I think throughout Genesis 1 and 2, I mean, you hear that repetition of what God created was good. Um, And I think that the garden is and was good, but I don't think it was perfect. I think God is an artist, and he created us in his image, and he called us to work. There was work before the fall. Um, And so he called us to reign over the world and to cultivate the world. Uh, We see at the end of Revelation that that when heaven comes down into the renewed earth, that that it is a city. Um, And so humans have developed it. And so the garden wasn't the end goal for God. God created us uh, to be creative agents and to work the land. Um, and, and so I think that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that it wasn't supposed to be left, that we were supposed to be part of that creative process that, that he engaged in with creation. Yeah, I, I, think in the gar- I think death was there before the fall, that what they lose is spiritual connection with God. They lose, the, with the fall comes spiritual death. And the loss of opportunity to have everlasting life, so the tree of life was taken away. But death create is existence before the fall. Evil exists before the fall. You have this, this Satan figure uh, or this serpent figure that represents evil in, in some way. I, I think the natural word is just this canvas on, out, on which life is played out. And there's good and bad in that natural world. There's water in the natural world. You drink it and it gives you life. But if you try to breathe under it, you drown. So, so that's the natural, you know, there, there's gravity, uh, which holds us on to the earth. But if you uh, misstep and fall off a cliff, you die. I think that's the natural fabric in which this takes place. So it, uh, the garden wasn't this perfect utopia. It, it was good. It was functionally good. But it existed in this realm where there are other things going on. I mean, they eat a fruit. You can't digest fruit unless you have death going on inside your stomach because bacteria eats it up. I mean, we, we draw assumptions that uh, we, and answers to questions that the text was never trying to address. All right, last one. What is the purpose of using multiple genres throughout the Bible instead of using the same? Wouldn't it cut down on follower misunderstanding? Uh, again, we got to let scripture set the table and God has the right to use any genre he wants. I think part of the reason he does that is because it becomes far more effective communication. The Old Testament stories are absolutely brilliant. Um, my, my whole understanding of scripture in the last five years has just gone up and my appreciation for its authority because I'm beginning to see it more in terms of its literary value and how genius the authors were. And that's what, what literature was written so that you just don't hear it and walk away. The Hebrew scriptures were written so you hear it and you go, oh, I'm going to have to think about that. So in chapter four, cha- chapter four 
uh, Cain kills Abel. But we're never told why. And because we're not told why, now I gotta think about it and I gotta ruminate and I gotta meditate and I gotta enter into the story and now it begins to change me. If, and Hebrew literature is sparse. It, it's intentionally written that way because it causes you to engage, all right? So Genesis 1, if it's written in a poetic, figurative way, its meaning in terms of understanding a particular worldview, we wrestle with now. If they try to give a scientific explanation of, of it back then, when they, God would have to put the author asleep and dictate it to him because he, he would have no clue. And two, then everybody who read it would go, I don't know what the heck he's talking about. But if he puts it in poetic language in, it, in the form of that culture, then they wrestle with it. So I, I think genre is what makes scripture what it is. God is incredibly creative. Thank you. Hey, these are hard questions. So in case you didn't catch that, the, the loaded questions, we titled it that because these are hard. These are questions that Nick and Jesse and Larry and everybody is wrestling through. So I just want to reassure you that if this feels overwhelming, there, there's a lot of information on these topics. That's why we put the contact information up. So feel free to contact any um, of the folks that have been on the panel or any staff member. We can help at least give you some resources that you can dig into. Um, as we close today, I want to just let you know that one of the things we're offering next week after the second service is a Q&A time in the Activity Center where we will answer some of the questions that were texted in that we just didn't have time to get to. So I want to invite you to join us for that. Um, they, we will provide lunch for free, so come and stop by that. And then don't forget to stop by, um, buy something from the student ministries. Forgot to tell you they're also selling magnets for $5. This lists the name of students that live in your neighborhoods that um, you can tap in to do, do some things around your house or help with babysitting all year round. And that's just outside here by the East Doors. Go in peace and have a great week.